0: everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence Medical Experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Arnoff, and here with me today is Dr. Owen Young, board-certified surgeon with Pacific Medical Centers in Seattle. And today we're answering your questions about colorectal surgery in addition to gallbladder disease and fecal incontinence. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, on social media. We can be found on Twitter under Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag TalkWithADoc, that's hashtag TalkWithADoc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Before we start, I want to remind our listeners that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started today by welcoming our expert, Dr. Young. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, let's tell the listeners a little bit about what you do here.
1: So I'm a general surgeon and a colon and rectal surgeon. So I did uh, training in general surgery and then subspecialty training in colon and rectal surgery. And I see patients with a wide variety of general surgery and colon and rectal complaints.
0: All right. So when we talk about colorectal surgery, what would people typically think, what conditions would that typically treat?
1: It's a wide variety of conditions, and it ranges from small conditions such as hemorrhoids, anal fissures, anal fistulas, to complicated problems such as ulcerative colitis, Crohn disease, colon cancers, rectal cancers.
0: And how did you get into this area, this specialized area?
1: When I was doing my general surgery training, uh, I, this field stood out to me partly because it's so broad. Uh, again, there's a lot of small issues that are everyday problems for people, and then life-changing uh, issues such as cancer and inflammatory bowel disease. And it was really an area where there's been an explosion of innovation. Uh, there's been a lot of new laparoscopic techniques, uh, robotic-assisted techniques, and other minimally invasive techniques um, that uh, really interested me in training, and that's what drove me to pursue subspecialty training in uh, colon surgery.
0: Is this something where you're starting to see a lot more patients? Because you mentioned IBS, and I feel like we're starting to hear IBS a lot more frequently. And I, I definitely know that it's mainstream because we hear people like Tyra Banks and Jenny McCarthy talk about how they how they cope with it. Is it more common, or are we just hearing more about it?
1: Well, the, there's IBS, which is which is uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and that that is something that uh, I think has been. Um, we're seeing more of, uh, but that's really an issue that gastroenterologists deal with. Okay, uh, This is inflammatory bowel disease, Got so um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn disease, which often it's difficult to differentiate the two initially, and uh, it takes some, some testing in many cases to be able to separate uh, IBS from IBD or inflammatory bowel disease.
0: And by the time they get to you, you already really know what the diagnosis is and you're doing the surgical procedure, or are you still at the diagnosis stage as well? It really just depends on the complaint. Um, I see
1: many anorectal complaints, so hemorrhoids, f- anal fissures, anal fistulas. What's a fissure? So a fissure is a tear. Okay. Um, so these are very common things. And I uh, honestly, many, many patients, many lay people, they think that any problem with their bottom is a hemorrhoid. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are a wide variety of issues, uh, like I said, fissures, fistulas, even anal cancers, that... People initially think are hemorrhoids, and I. it's not uncommon for me to see a patient in the office for a quote-unquote hemorrhoid when in fact they have a fissure or a fistula, and the treatment is totally different depending on what the complaint okay. is. So it's important to differentiate those things. Um, so oftentimes those types of patients will come to me without a diagnosis or maybe with not the right diagnosis. A self-diagnosis yeah. maybe.
0: Okay. Do you find that you're getting people, though, who maybe were too embarrassed to come in or didn't want to talk about it, so they've waited too long and it could have been treated differently if they'd come in sooner?
1: It's it's very common for these issues to go uh, unmentioned, uh, unmentioned to their primary care physician, unmentioned sometimes to, to, to people around them because they're embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, And in some cases, I do think that people delay...
0: Well, I know uh, Sharon Osborne, she had colorectal surgery. I think she maybe had cancer. I can't remember. But I know she was very vocal on her TV show about the fact that we all poop. We all have these things, right? We have our body parts. Let's not be embarrassed. And I think she's really been vocal about trying to get people to have their exams and get their colonoscopies. Is that something where we should be encouraging people to just talk about it? Like we say it about mental health, right? It's okay to say you're not okay. Should we just tell people it's okay if your bottom's not okay?
1: Uh, absolutely. And, you know, patients come to the office and sometimes they're embarrassed or they're nervous. And I, I explained to them that uh, these are as you said, common everyday things. It's, it's a natural part of life to deal with these issues. And if you uh, don't address them, then they can become real problems.
0: I think people also typically seem to think that these problems are more prevalent in men. And yet when I was doing some research on this and I was specifically looking about big names that have brought attention to it, it was Audrey Hepburn, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it was Sharon Osborne. It's not just a men, a, a male thing, correct?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Colorectal disease, whether that's cancer, whether that's uh, fissures, fistulas, hemorrhoids, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, fecal incontinence—any of these issues um, are common in men and women. It may be that that women are are more willing to mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. them, and I, I think there is more, for whatever reason, an embarrassment factor among among men.
0: Interesting. Well, how common is colon cancer specifically?
1: Uh, it's one of the most common cancers uh, that we see, you know, as many as 50,000 Americans wow. die every year die. of colorectal wow. cancer. World, worldwide, more than a million new diagnoses are made every year, so it's, wow. it's very common. Maybe as many as 5% of Americans uh, will ultimately get c- colon or rectal cancer. And if you think about that, if you think about 20 people that you know, that's one person for every 20 people that oh. you know is going to have one of these issues.
0: Is there any way to prevent it? Is it screenings? What? How do we get ahead of it?
1: Yeah. So the the best way to prevent it is to screen for it, and uh, there are various screening methodologies. Colonoscopy is probably the the most well known, mm-hmm. but there uh, there are stool tests and and other uh, ways that can be screened for it. It's important, I think, for anybody who is forty five years or older to be discussing this with their primary care physician about what's the best screening mm-hmm. for them to prevent uh, colon or rectal cancer. And we've seen over the last um, couple of decades that the incidence or the uh, number of patients um, with colon or rectal cancer is going down, oh, good. Okay. Um, especially in the older populations. In addition to that, what we're seeing, though, is there are more young people that are being ni- diagnosed with colon or rectal cancer, so those uh, under the age of 50.
0: And is that because they're getting screenings?
1: We think that there's, we, we, no, we think that there's fewer people, older people getting diagnosed because they've been screened. Okay. Polyps have been removed, for instance, during colonoscopy, and so they're not developing cancer they otherwise would have. Young people, it, it, it's a kind of a controversial area. We're not sure why it seems to be the incidence of uh, colon rectal cancer is rising among young people.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah. So when you have colorectal surgery, is it really intensive? Does it vary? Is there kind of like a whole gamut that it can run?
1: Yeah, there's a whole gamut again because uh, colon and rectal surgery really deals with anything related to the colon, the rectum, or the anus. It's anything from small uh, procedures, um, some of which can be done in the office, some which are done as outpatient su- surgery, to you know major, multiple-hour, um, minimally invasive laparoscopic or robotic operations in which people may be in the hospital for you know several days.
0: Are there um, side effects or risks to having a colorectal surgery? Yeah, it, it, it
1: depends on, certainly depends on the operation. Um, you know, uh, I would say that for the vast majority of patients uh, who have uh, a, a colon or rectal operation, they can return back to a quality of life um, comparable to what they had before. But certainly, um, depending on what it, what the surgery is for, there, there can be, subsequent effects on lifestyle and things.
0: Well, I know when it comes to like prostate cancer, we hear a lot of men saying they don't want to do it because they might have impotence later. They might have urinary leakage. I've heard fecal incontinence is a concern with colorectal surgery. Is that something that you have to talk with people about? Certainly sometimes
1: when we do rectal operations, remove a portion of the rectum for cancer or other reasons, it can change um, the function of someone's, uh, someone's bowel habits, for instance. So they may go more frequently. Um, they may need fiber supplementation, for instance, to help uh-huh. thicken their stools. And in some cases, uh, patients uh, may have more difficulty uh, controlling their stools than they did before.
0: Is that something that we should look at as a warning sign, uh, big changes in, in like our, our fecal patterns, I guess, or the look, the texture, if we're having bleeding? What are the main things people should come to you if they're seeing? Yeah, I think
1: the the change in bowel habits is a big red flag uh, that something is going wrong in the the colon that needs to be looked at. So someone who is having more difficulty stooling, certainly if there's blood, uh, sometimes that's bright red blood. Sometimes it's dark, uh, kind of tarry, sticky Mm -hmm. stools. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are certainly warning signs that should be investigated. And if someone has not had... Uh, a colonoscopy. That would be a reasonable indication whether they were over 50 or not. Again, sure. we're seeing more and more colon and rectal cancer in younger people. And so even someone who's 35, 40 years old, who's having some of those symptoms, they should, they should be seen and discuss that with their primary care doctor about whether or not it makes sense to do an endoscopic evaluation.
0: People should be looking at their poop though, right? Yes. I mean, okay. I feel like people don't. Uh,
1: I think many, uh, many many people do but don't talk about it, but sure. I, I think, those, it, it is again, it's a good indicator about what's going on inside, and so I think it is important to know what's coming out.
0: So if you are a man over a certain age, or a woman even, and you were told that you should get a colonoscopy every few years, but you feel like there's something going on or you've seen a pattern change, it's okay to go to the doctor and say, maybe I should do it sooner?
1: Absolutely. So for many patients who have had a colonoscopy for screening, um, this is where they turn 50 years old and they have a colonoscopy looking to remove polyps or other growths before they turn into cancer, oftentimes they'll be given uh, an interval to return for another colonoscopy. For instance, if you have, a, have an adenobinous polyp on that's small on a colonoscopy, oftentimes you'll be recommended to get another colonoscopy in five years. Mm-hmm. Now those are called screening colonoscopies. that are really looking to prevent problems. Now if you in the meantime develop a problem, uh, then that would be, that's kind of a different category. And you should not hesitate to uh, consider talking to your uh, doctor and and getting an earlier colonoscopy if you're having symptoms like we discussed.
0: Well, we talked a little bit about fecal incontinence. I it, I hear that it's surprisingly common. Why is that?
1: One of the reasons it's common is that like all other body systems, as you begin to age, your, um, the uh, system that's in charge of your continence um, starts to deteriorate. And so just like uh, lungs, heart, all your other systems start functioning less well, your, your anus and rectum start functioning less well. And so as people get older, and as we're seeing more and more older people with the living uh, longer uh, exactly with Mm -hmm. with baby boomers uh, getting older uh, and other folks um, it's becoming more prevalent as you mentioned before people don't talk about it though and it's Mm -hmm. often uh, something that people silently suffer with and um, several large scale studies have shown that it's actually quite common in older patients but that they rarely discuss it Mm -hmm. Uh, what they don't uh, know is that uh, and what many of their providers don't know is that there are things that can be done to help them um, control their symptoms and to in- improve their quality of life.
0: What would some of those things be? I know like when you talk about bladder incontinence, there's certain like uh, exercises you can do. What can you do for this?
1: So um, the first thing is you need you need an evaluation. Uh, if this is a change for you, if incontinence is new, uh, you need to make sure there's no serious underlying problem. Uh, so for instance, a colonoscopy is often a reasonable thing to do. If there are no uh, serious underlying things, you know, continence is a very complicated um, mechanism. There's anatomic factors, there's functional factors, there's dietary factors. And so sitting down uh, with your provider and going over those things, sometimes medications um, can mm-hmm. be can sure. be an issue. Um, again, sometimes things that you eat. And by kind of looking at those issues and, and fixing the ones that can be fixed, um, sometimes we can improve... Uh, incontinence just with those uh, measures. Oftentimes, fiber supplementation is important. I would mm-hmm. say f- at least 50% of the patients that I see in my office with fecal incontinence, and by fecal incontinence, what I mean is these are patients who are having accidents, sometimes several times a week. Oh, wow. um, uh, just supplementing them with fiber can actually totally turn things around.
0: What a simple thing, If you and it could save you so much pain and suffering, I would exactly. think, and embarrassment.
1: And then of those patients who who, uh, who don't do well with fiber or don't improve enough with fiber that their quality of life has not improved, there are, um, there are newer things. In the last 10 years, um, we've been doing something called sacral nerve modulation or sacral nerve stimulation. And basically what that involves, it's like a pacemaker, except instead of for your heart, it's a pacemaker device for some of the nerves in your tailbone that affect continence. And many of the patients who don't improve their incontinence with Uh, fiber supplementation, uh, will either totally resolve their incontinence or have marked improvement in their incontinence with sacral nerve stimulation.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Are there other kind of technological advancements that are taking place in this, even maybe from a surgical perspective?
1: I think sacral nerve stimulation is the most important thing, Mm -hmm. certainly in the last 10 years. Many things have been tried uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, artificial sphincters, um, you know, operations on the sphincter, various things, um, the results of which have not been uh, as good. Uh, but the sacral nerve stimulation is something that has uh, really good results behind it, and that a lot of people don't know about or haven't heard about. Sure. Are
0: well, we to assume if we're going to start to see more and more younger people with these issues that we're going to start to see a lot more research? Yeah. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start taking your questions on gallbladder
2: disease. She keeps leaving you for dead. I don't know what you've been waiting for. Show you got your love locked up instead. But something better's waiting at your door. You don't know you. Feeling down, Bye. you get stronger thoughts left in your head. When you lost hope, soon you will be fine. Find some money
0: to talk with the doc today. I'm joined by our Dr. Young, and we have been talking about colorectal surgery. And now we're going to make a shift and we're going to talk a little bit about gallbladder disease. Um, can you tell me kind of high level, what is gallbladder disease? Well, the
1: first let's talk about what the gallbladder is. Sure. Uh, a lot of people don't, uh, a lot of people have heard of it, but don't really know what it does. It's really just a sac that holds bile. Interestingly, it doesn't even make the bile. Bile is made in your liver, and it's a, it's a liquid, uh, a kind of brownish-greenish liquid that helps you digest some of your food, particularly fatty foods. And so that uh, bile is made in your liver, and then it moves from your liver down a tube called the bile duct into the small intestine. Now, you know, between meals when we're not eating and we don't need the bile to help us digest our food, uh, the bile will back up and be stored into your gallbladder, and so uh, it just hangs out in there essentially until you've had something to eat. And then that's, there's some hormonal stimulation after you eat something that causes the gallbladder to squeeze. And then you get a big, what we call a bolus or a big um, squirt of bile into your intestines to help you digest food.
0: Okay. So if you have gallbladder disease, then does that mean that the gallbladder is not working? Does it mean that the bile is bad? What does it mean?
1: The, the most common issue with the gallbladder is stones. Oh, okay. So Is that gallstones? Gallstones. That? Oh, okay. That's exactly right. And, and most of the uh, common issues that we see with the gallbladder have to do with the gallbladder making stones, which are I- incredibly common. And those stones can cause a variety of issues. They can uh, block up the gallbladder itself, which causes pain, often pain on the right side that radiates to the back, can cause nausea. That's often an intermittent problem. So a stone will block up the gallbladder, and then after a while, a few hours, uh, the stone moves away, gallbladder relaxes, and the pain goes away. Does
0: it pass, like a kidney stone, or does it stay in there?
1: Uh, They can pass, but unlike a kidney stone in which you pass, it kind of goes out of your kidney, out of your ureter, into your bladder, and you pee it out, Um, gallstones, uh, they're too big really to... In general, to get out of the bi- biliary system and into the intestine. So, if they pass out of the gallbladder, they can actually cause other problems because they get stuck elsewhere. So, they can get stuck farther down in the in the bile ducts. They can not just block up the gallbladder; they can block up the whole liver. That can cause jaundice and pain. Mm. They can block up the pancreas. So, uh, and you can get a. a Inflammation of the pancreas called pancreatitis, which also causes uh, a lot of pain. So I've
0: heard that one's very painful.
1: Even even getting out of the gallbladder those stones uh, can cause problems.
0: So you talked a little bit about what the gallbladder does. I've often heard of it referred to as a useless organ, though. And I think it was uh, Mark Ravenhill had a surgery, had it removed, and then posted on Instagram: "This was my useless organ." Do we need it, or do we not need it?
1: To say it's useless, I, it's probably overblown to say it's useless, but but certainly uh, you can live just fine without it. Many mammals uh, don't have gallbladders. So, um, and in the United States, probably a million people a year have their gallbladder taken out. Wow, that's a big so, number. Yeah, it's an incredibly high number. So uh, even if you don't realize it, uh, many people in your circle that you know or are acquainted with have had their gallbladder removed. So in general, uh, the long-term consequences of having a gallbladder removed are, are very minimal.
0: Is that a pretty intensive surgery? Is it like a long hours? Is it a big scar? Or is it pretty easy? Has it changed over time?
1: It certainly changed over time. Uh, on the scale of operations that I do, it's one of the more straightforward uh, operations. Someone who has gallstones that are causing some symptoms, we do that as an outpatient surgery. Okay. Certainly, years ago, uh, before the early '90s, uh, you would have to make an incision under the rib cage, um, that sometimes required an inpatient hospital stay. Uh, that is that is, uh, for the most part, for elective gallbladder surgery, totally gone away. We do it uh, entirely minimally invasively with small incisions, a, a camera, and and small instruments. We're able to find the gallbladder and we take it out through uh, a small incision, uh, usually at the belly button. So patients come in; they have so the operation. So you went from the
0: rib cage down to the belly button. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, you know, patients come in; they have the operation; and they go home the same day.
0: Oh, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how would I know, this is a question, how would I know if I have a gallbladder attack?
1: So there, the thing about gallbladder attacks is that the type of symptoms they can cause uh, can be quite variable. And and one person's gallbladder attack may be different than another person's gallbladder attack. That said, there are some common themes. Oftentimes, it's, it causes abdominal pain. Usually abdominal pain is on the right side, although sometimes it can be in the middle or sometimes it can be a band-like distribution um, across the belly. Oftentimes, but not always, the pain will radiate to the back. Mm-hmm. It, it can be associated with eating, and that's a very classic type of symptom. So 40, 30 minutes, 45 minutes after you have something to eat, you'll have an attack. Okay. And it's not uncommon for patients to have nausea associated with that. Again, there's a lot of variability. Some patients just have nausea. Some pa- patients just have pain and, and anywhere in between.
0: Well, when it comes to gallstones, as you called them, how can you avoid those?
1: It's very difficult. Um there are many factors that go into uh development of gallstones. There are uh familial and genetic factors. It's mm-hmm. not uncommon for it to, to run in families. Um there they tend to be more common in women. Okay. Uh and we think that's related to hormones and other uh and estrogen, other hormones. Uh but we see plenty of men also with uh gallbladder issues. In fact, uh, oftentimes, men have their gallbladder problems and gallstones diagnosed later than women because people often don't think of gallstones in men. Okay. So, so sometimes they have a more delayed diagnosis uh, for that reason. Uh, we know that uh, uh, being overweight can contribute to uh, developing gallstones, as can ra- rapid weight loss. Interestingly enough, so it's not it's not un- it's not uncommon for patients to have. Uh, bariatric or weight loss surgery, and they can subsequently develop gallstones in those first few months um, after surgery in which they're rapidly losing weight. Uh, Some bariatric surgeons will actually um, treat these patients with a a medication to help prevent gallstone formation.
0: Okay. So getting ahead of it if you know you're going to have a big surgery or something like that. Okay. So... You kind of mentioned the genetic factor, but we got a question that said, my cousin had gallbladder issues in the past. Is it genetic? So will I also have issues? So it could be, but it's not always.
1: Yeah, not always. But uh, we think that the formation of the stones in the gallbladder uh, has to do with the various things that are dissolved in the bile. There's bile acids and bile salts. And uh, certainly the composition of your bile is on some level genetic. There's also going to be dietary factors and environmental factors. But if if uh, if someone has gallstones for whatever reason, uh, it's likely that their family members have the same kind of composition of bile and are at risk for developing gallstones as well.
0: I'm not feeling good about this conversation because my grandma had it, my cousin had it. I recently lost 120 pounds. I'm starting to have some nerves right now.
1: Well, uh, it, it's possible. But what what's also interesting about gallstones is that many people have them and they don't cause them symptoms. Okay. Or sometimes people have gallstones and they have them for years and they aren't troubling them. And then they begin to develop trouble with their gallstones. We haven't worked out exactly why some people, their gallstones cause them problems and why some people have gallstones for years until they cause them problems.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because pink the music artist had to miss a big performance for obama because she had gallbladder surgery and she found out that she'd had it for years and it had never been a problem and that's what she said like of all days for me to have yeah. it right now what what makes that change why can you go for years and not know uh we haven't worked that out yet okay well maybe you should work on that <laughs> um well can you remove the gallstones without surgery or is surgery the only option because you mentioned the medication for like when people have uh weight loss surgery to prevent but
1: this this is a very common question that that i uh hear from patients in the office how about you just open the gallbladder and take out the stones Um, and i assure them that has been tried okay Uh, and it doesn't work and it doesn't work for two reasons the first reason is the gallbladder uh it's uh unlike the intestine or some other organs it doesn't heal together very well and so you it's very thin walled so you open it up Uh, and you take out the stones and you close it back up, you can get leaking of bile from the Mm. gallbladder, which is a problem. More importantly though, you can think of the gallbladder as the stone factory. So if you open the gallbladder up and take out the stones and you close the gallbladder back, even if it heals together well, you haven't changed whatever underlying issues created the stones in the first place. And so guess what? Over time, you're likely to make more stones.
0: Sure. Well, you said that we can live without it, but obviously we have it for a reason. If, if I do have it removed, do I have to change the way I eat? What's the impact long-term?
1: Uh, again, as a general rule, uh, long-term uh, impact of not having gallbladder is very minimal. Now, sometimes in the initial first weeks or months after uh, the operation, uh, people can get loose stools or diarrhea, especially if they have fatty foods, and the reason is a uh, Bile is really important in terms of absorbing fat. And so if you don't absorb that fat in the upper part of your intestinal tract, um, that can give you diarrhea. That said, the body is an amazing thing, and it adapts over time to not having a gallbladder. What will happen is, again, the gallbladder is just a sac that stores bile. So uh, the bile ducts that are not removed, they will actually get a little bit larger to help accommodate more bile and kind of act as little gallbladders. And then in addition to that, your body changes the way that it regulates the production and reabsorption of bile. So your body uh, adapts over time. Human
0: body's fascinating. Well, we got a question that said, is yo-yo dieting impactful to my gallbladder?
1: It uh, certainly can be. And th- this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about rapid weight loss. Uh, we know that rapid weight loss and fasting, actually, for long periods of time, um, both of those things um, are risk factors for developing gallstones. We th- we think part of that is what we call stasis of the bile, meaning you have bile that's sitting in the gallbladder and it's not going anywhere. Okay. And over time if if the gallbladder is not squeezing, the bile sitting there can precipitate out these bile salts and bile acids that then turn into stones. Interesting. So certainly yo 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 dieting where you're going a long periods of time without eating, losing weight rapidly can can cause gallstone formation.
0: So you said fasting, but you really mean the, like, I'm not eating anything for days, not necessarily the intermittent fasting that everybody's doing right now. Or is that similar?
1: I don't think anyone's ever looked at whether intermittent fasting um, uh, is a factor, but I think it certainly could be. Again, if you go intermittent fasting, a lot of folks are going 10 or 12 or more hours Mm -hmm. without eating. And during that time, you have bile stasis within within your gallbladder, and that certainly can put you at risk for developing gallstones.
0: Maybe you already answered this and I just didn't follow it. But if I don't have a gallbladder, then am I not making the bile anymore?
1: No. Again, the gallbladder, it doesn't make the bile. It just stores the bile like a sack. And so all the bile is made in your liver. And so your liver continues, continues to make the bile independent of whether or not you have a gallbladder.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, at what point then if I have gallbladder issues or I feel like I'm having these symptoms, do I need to come in and see you?
1: Well, uh, often patients um, who have gallbladder issues are referred from their their primary physician. So they'll go in with complaints of uh, abdominal pain, uh, nausea, and uh, the best test really to diagnose gallstones uh, and gallbladder issues is an ultrasound. Okay. Uh, and it's actually even better than a CT scan or some other testing. Oftentimes a CT scan can't see gallstones, and they're best seen on an ultrasound and once you have it once you have an ultrasound that's when patients uh, will get referred to the office to discuss whether or not it makes sense to remove their gallbladder.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if you do have gallbladder removed, how long does the pain last? That was one question we got.
1: So, uh, it obviously depends on the setting. If if you're having an elective gallbladder removed for symptomatic gallstones, um uh, Uh, Again, patients are going to go home the same day from that operation in most cases, and you'll be sore for a couple weeks. The soreness that you have is really muscle soreness from where the small incisions are. I would say most of my patients by two or three days after surgery are taking just ibuprofen and Tylenol. Um, uh, Occasionally, in the first couple days after surgery, they may take a stronger medication uh, like uh, an opiate pain medication like oxycodone. But maybe as many half as my pa- half of my patients won't take any opiates at all. So it's really just an abdominal wall soreness, and and most patients after a couple of weeks are are feeling close to their baseline.
0: That doesn't sound too bad. So is it a myth or is it fact though that a lot of pregnant women get gallstones? Uh,
1: it, pregnancy can be a risk factor for development of gallstones, and again, we think there are some hormonal factors. Um, your hormones are doing different things during during. Pregnancy, uh, they can help uh, kind of instigate the development of
0: gallstones goodness my goodness okay well thank you so much for your time this has been very informative you've answered a lot of questions about several different topics um i'd like to thank you dr young for your time for joining us and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions you can follow pac med doctors on twitter at pac med wa and on facebook under pacific medical centers we look forward to future topics with more experts from pac med in providence make sure to follow us on social media at psjh on twitter and on instagram and under providence saint joseph health on facebook to learn more about our mission programs and services visit future.pa KSJHealth.org. Thanks for listening.